We're going to take a few minutes this morning and uh, um, go back into our text that we've been looking at, several things. And so if you have your your Bible, you can look at uh, Isaiah chapter 19. If you don't, uh, then it's printed for you in your bulletin. But if you have a phone app, uh, which is what I generally use now when I'm out and about, and uh, if you don't, uh, you can get the app. It's real. R- there's a lot of good ones out there. Uh, and Dawson or I or one of the other folks in the church can help you if you're interested in putting it on your phone. Uh, but look at Isaiah chapter 19. Now, I, I printed in the bulletin from the New Living Translation. This is a... Uh, a more modern wording. It's a paraphrase, but the translation was very nice, so I put it in here. Uh, Now hear God's word, and we're going to start reading at verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will be as weak as women. They will cower in fear beneath the upraised fist of the Lord of heaven's armies. Just to speak the name of Israel will terrorize them, for the Lord of heaven's armies has laid out his plans against them. In that day, five of Egypt's cities will follow the Lord of heaven's armies. They will even begin to speak Hebrew, the language of Canaan. One of these cities will be Heliopolis, the city of the sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt, and there will be a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness that the Lord of heaven's armies is worshipped in the land of Egypt. When the people cry to the Lord for help against those who oppress them, he will send them a savior who will rescue them. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. Yes, they will know the Lord and will give their sacrifices and offerings to him. They will make a vow to the Lord and will keep it. The Lord will strike Egypt and then he will bring healing. For the Egyptians will turn to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas and heal them. In that day, Egypt and Assyria will be connected by a highway The Egyptians and the Assyrians will move freely between their lands and they will both worship God. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. For the Lord of heaven's armies will say, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, the land I have made. Blessed be Israel, my special possession. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been talking about uh, what it's going to look like coming out of COVID. Everyone that I know that's a pastor or a ministry leader across denominations, doesn't just be in the PCA, but all denominations, everyone's talking about what's it going to look like coming out of COVID. No one is under the illusion that things are going to be the same. They are going to be different. But we believe that they will be different, in some ways worse, but in some ways much, much better. 
And so the leadership here at Christ the King, we're talking about this. We're going to talk with you all this afternoon, right after church, 30 minutes. We're going to give you, and over the next few weeks, we'll be having these town halls just real quick. We want to give everybody little snippets about what we're going to plan for uh, this coming September, which is generally the, the beginning of the, the church year, the ministry year. And so I hope that you'll stay for that. We won't keep you long. Uh, and you can get an idea of what, what it's going to look like going forward. But one of the main things that we're going to try to do is continue, which we've done. I believe Christ the King does a great job of teaching good biblical theology, good understanding of what the scriptures teach. What we can certainly do better at is reaching out into our neighborhood. And we got this building in 2016, and uh, we've been here for five years now, and we, we're, you can't even count last year and a half, but we're going to do our very best to start moving outside, take what we know, what we've learned, what we've taught, and go out and try to serve our community, not just to get people saved. I mean, we expect people to come to Jesus, but also just to help uh, bring light and salt to our world. And uh, unless you're just living under a rock, there is rage and hatred and anger and uh, you name it. It's just way over the top. And what is alarming is that Christian people are engaging with it and being participants in it. And so Dawson and I in the session of the church, we are not going to abide that. That is not okay. And we're going to do everything we can to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so, which is a gospel of peacemaking, of looking to make your enemies your friends, of looking to bring reconciliation and reunification to a world that is being shredded. And even a church, I think the church in the United States, is being shredded. And um, so let's do our best to change that. The first week we talked about the day of Pentecost, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and this phenomenon of speaking in other tongues, uh, there's a lot lot of controversy around it, but at at least this we can all agree on. And that is where Babel, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, scattered the nations, scattered people like chaff to the four winds of the earth and all of the earthly conflict that we see today and back throughout human history is a result of that great judgment upon the people at Babel. The confusion of languages. And here on the day of Pentecost, we see the church coming out of the upper room and speaking in other tongues, other languages that were understood by all the visiting people in Jerusalem from all of the, the regions that surround. So there was a, and, and Peter calls it a sign. It is a sign that where before there was scattering, now there will be a time of gathering. And Peter said, these are the last days. So the last days are not some little period of time uh, at the end of some calendar. It's all the days that go between the time Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven till he returns from heaven. And so all of those are the last days. 
And during those last days, this time of gathering, of reunification, of peacemaking, of losing our life for the sake of others, is the, the, the bottom line of Christianity. It's not about gaining money. It's not about building big buildings and, and accruing political power or monetary power. It's about serving and suffering if need be, for the name of Jesus Christ, the true King of the earth. And those are the things that God has called us to. And if we forget those or we get sidetracked, we lose the vision for what it means to be a Christian. You can call it anything else, but it's not Christian to go in these other, other ways. Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow me. Take up a symbol of ignominy, of shame, of weakness, of death, but life, freedom, and hope. Take that up and make your way into this hostile world with that upon your lips. And so their common language, the common tongue, if you will, that came out of this phenomenon of tongues was what Peter said and what the people said the wondrous works of God. You see, they heard in their own languages the wonderful works of God. That's what tongues were for. They were for a sign to bring the gospel to all the world. And so that's what the day of Pentecost. Then we looked at the, the last week, the Samaritan woman by the well, and I took a little different angle at it because this Samaritan woman, this, these people were... Uh, cousins of the of Judah, they were Israelites, but they had abandoned the worship of God in Jerusalem and were worshiping at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And Jesus makes a trip through Samaria. He goes and finds this woman at a well at an odd time of day when she's there alone, and he starts to engage her. And if you read the, the text carefully, like we talked about it last week, he breaks down all the barriers, and at, at, at a certain point, he starts to talk to her about spirituality. And the reality of this is that everybody throughout time, they, everyone will want to tell you what they believe. What do you believe? Well, I just believe that we evolved from... Uh, 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 amoeba and that our, we just we come from nothing and we go to nothing and therefore we are nothing. That's Friedrich Nietzsche. We come from nothing, we go to nothing, so why are we kidding ourselves that the middle, that our life right here now means anything? So he was a nihilist. And that's what you see in the world today. People are out there and they're saying, you know, what is the meaning of life? And look, folks, if you just came from nothing and you're going to nothing, then don't pretend that anything in between matters. Be honest. But Jesus didn't leave it at that. He says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he is dead, yet shall he live. You see, God is the only one that we know of that, that has projected this eternal vision of what creation really is for. And if you believe that everyone, if the statistics are right, there's only something like 2 or 3% of the population of the earth that are truly atheist. That means 
70% of people on the face of earth, what, 7 billion and, and climbing, believe in something outside of themselves. So people love to talk about spiritual things. Problem is, we don't want to listen. We don't want to hear it. We just want to give them our, our, uh, our confrontational monologue. Here's why you should believe. Here's the four uh, things that you need to know about the truth about God. F- listen to them. Find out where they're coming from. Jesus did that. Then he went and described the difference between the true God and what their vision of God was. And, and we spent some time on that. Today I'm going to talk about... So, th- so this woman represented the harvest. We, Jesus told his disciples, look, here come the Samaritans. They're coming out of the city to go listen to Jesus. And he said, look, at the harvest fields are white. They're ready to go. Go harvest. Go to work. And that's part of the vision we're going to present to you later this afternoon. So today, reuniting humanity. In this text, you see God going outside the borders of Israel. And he doesn't go outside the border of Israel to some of the favorable countries that might have been allies of Israel, and there were a few. No, he goes to their quintessential enemies, the Egyptians and the Assyrians. The Egyptians and the Assyrians become emblematic They become emblematic of God's reaching not just to people that are kind of off track, but people that are completely off track. To the people that, in every sense of the word, were the direst and worst and cruelest enemies to God's people. And here you find Isaiah prophesying a word about the coming or the gathering in of the Gentiles. Now, most of us are Gentiles, uh, and uh, if, if you have Jewish blood in you, then congratulations, maybe uh, you get an extra star on your robe in heaven. I don't know. Uh, chances are that's not going to happen. We're all going to have the same coverage in heaven. There's no distinction. But nevertheless, God is reaching not to the Samaritans, not to these people that were close to the Jews, He's reaching all the way out to the worst of the worst. So in this passage, you have a five-fold refrain. I don't know if you heard it. And it starts with, in that day. This is the day we're talking about. These days. Last days. Days that God will be gathering people to himself. And so... um, Dr. Derek Kidner said this in his commentary, and I I liked it so much, we're going to follow this, and we'll get through it pretty quick. So listen, it's fantastic. The five-fold refrain in that day, Isaiah foresees the conversion of the Gentiles under the image of Israel's most ancient oppressor and seducer, Egypt. And the process is traced in these five sayings in that day. First, from fear to submission to access to fellowship and to full acceptance. This is the process that God is using to bring the nations to himself. And if you think about it, 
It's the process that He brought you and I to Himself as well. So let's look at them quickly. There's five of these sayings, and I'll go through them pretty quick. Look at 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17. In that day, the Egyptians will be as weak as women. They will cower in fear beneath the upraised fist of the Lord of heaven's armies. Just to speak the name of Israel will terrorize them. The Lord of heaven's armies uh, laid plans against them. You see, what Isaiah is saying is that this historical enemy, Egypt, all of Egypt's interactions with Israel turned out bad for the Egyptians. Now, they may have enslaved them for 400 years, and then Moses gets them out of the enslavement, but it cost them, and their nation was destroyed. And each time, the, the, the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt uh, crossed swords the Egyptians would lose. They may not have lost every time, but over history and over time, they lose. The mistake is, and please hear me, folks, the mistake is taking this scripture and and shooting it like a mortar way into the future, into the 21st century, and then you get out your spiritual binoculars and you start looking and saying, okay, I see, Egypt, yeah, we got to watch the newspaper and see what's going on in Egypt. That's to miss the whole point. Of the passage. Assyria is gone. Egypt's gone. Egypt is no longer a world power. I mean, but they are emblematic of God's enemies. So to just narrow it down to some little period of time in the 21st century is to miss the point. The point is that God is saying, My judgment, the fear that I will strike into the hearts of my enemies will not result, listen, will not result in their annihilation. Did you hear that? Not result in their annihilation. I'm not out to defeat my enemies. God says, I'm not, I'm not about destroying people. I'm about redeeming people. Now you can mistake it and you can say, oh, God's going to destroy this and destroy that. Then you beg the question, why hasn't He destroyed you? Who do you think you are better than anybody else? If God's, if the judgment of God, if you don't know that you have nothing, absolutely zero, to commend yourself to a holy God, then you don't understand the gospel. No one can stand, nobody can stand before God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Where do we get this pride where we think we can take our paltry, our pennies, our copper pennies and throw them at God and say, here's, this is enough for you. Our filthy rags. That's not, if God did that for us, why are we surprised that He would do it for Egypt? And that's what He's saying. I'll bring judgment. I will terrorize them. I'm going to make them so afraid that they will cower before me. Now, to us, we think, oh, that's kind of mean. No, it's not, because he's not going to destroy them. He's not going to take the sword and chop off their head. He is going to bring them to a place of brokenness and then embrace them, just like he did you and me. Just like that. No different. Pharaoh said this. When Moses came the first time, it's uh, Exodus 5. 
Moses comes to Pharaoh first time and he says, I'm here to speak for the Lord and the Lord says, let my people go. And here's Pharaoh's answer. Listen, this Pharaoh is us before we know Jesus. This is our answer to God. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I have my own God. I have my own gods. I made up my own gods. I have my own religion going on here. Who is God to say to me this, that, or the other thing? I will not let Israel go. It's what Pharaoh said. Now, I don't know about you folks. I've said no to God a hundred thousand times. I'm ashamed to say it because I'm a professional holy person. And you would think that of all people, I should be a stellar. But I say no to God all the time. I say, no, I'm not going to let that go. That is too important to me. And so do you. And God doesn't hold his nose, get out his sword, and stab it in your heart and put you to death. He puts you to death, all right, but he puts you to death so that he can bring you back to life. He, he, he embraces us. My goodness. You know, our typical reaction to the gospel when we hear about, you know, our typical reaction is, how can you Christians be so narrow? You know, saying that you've got to be saved by Jesus. Well, hey, I am, it is narrow. Tell me how you're going to get saved. See, ask the person, if there's an eternity, if there's a God out there, he, she, it, them, it doesn't matter. If there's something else after this life, then how will you make yourself right with that something out there? What will you do? And the only answer that human beings have ever, ever had are fig leaves. That's the only thing we've ever offered God is some way of covering our sin ourselves. So we'll give a lot of money to church or we'll quit smoking, quit drinking, quit dancing, quit, you know, we'll quit stuff. We'll do all of these crazy things to try to get God to love us. Extreme obedience or we'll just go off and become like the prodigal son, lose our mind and sin. doesn't matter. We will do something. And all the time, God is saying, you don't have enough currency and you don't have the right kind of currency. You're going to come to me on my terms or not at all. And so you ask this God, what will it take? And God says, look up there. There's perfection. There's the beauty. There's the glory. Is that narrow? I don't think so. I think, that's, I think that's arms about as wide as they will go. Love about as broad as you can find, as deep as you can dig. Nothing narrow about that, my friends. That is, that is a universal, powerful, furious kind of love that reaches across the ocean to the enemy and brings the enemy in. And that's what we're looking at in that day. God's judgment leads to redemption, not annihilation. The second phrase, look at verse 18. In that day, Egypt's cities, 
Five cities will follow the Lord of Heaven's army. They will speak Hebrew, the language of Canaan at the time. And one of the cities is going to be Heliopolis, the city of the sun. The city of the sun was the place where uh, one of the major deities of Egypt resided, Heliopolis, city of the sun, sun god, Ra, who was, uh, there was a, a group of Egyptians that were monotheistic, believe it or not. They believed in the sun god, Ra. And so in this passage, God's grace, God's love, his stroke, if you will, of judgment that brings repentance to these people then takes them into a place where they become worshipers. They submit, in the words of uh, uh, Dr. Kidner, they submit to God. They give their, their lives over to him completely. You know, when you come to Jesus, I, I don't know about you, and I can only speak about myself, and I don't want to be too self-referential, but I think my experience is probably typical. There were probably things in your life, or even if you grew up in a Christian home and you always were a believer, at some point in your life, you find your, your way crossing God's way. And so what do we generally do? Generally, what we do is we adjust What? We adjust God's way. We say, oh, he won't mind. And we'll, we'll make all kinds of space for our sin. We'll just, and, and if, if we get out to the edge of it, we'll say, oh, you know, he really is loving and he's so good. We'll push it a little bit further and we'll push it a little bit further. What we don't know is over here is a landmine that's going to blow you to smithereens. And so he says no. He puts guardrails up. And he tells you, my children, don't go there. There's snakes there. There's dragons. There be, there be dragons there. There's blood and death and destruction. Don't do that. But we're smarter than him. We've got our fig leaves. We're ready to go. So there's a point at which a Christian, we don't like this, especially Americans don't like, because we have rights we have a declaration of independence and a constitution that is on par with the Bible. And if you don't believe it, I'll send you dozens of articles about the, the crazy nationalism that's in our country right now, in the church. You have no rights as a Christian. I'll probably lose half of you today, but God help you, not me. When Jesus calls Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man to himself, he calls him and says, come and die. There's nothing he can't ask from you. Nothing that he can't require. And yet, what does he require from us? Will you trust me? That's all he asks. Will you trust me? I know you got problems. I know that there's sin. I know. Will you trust me with it? I have these desires that I can't control, Lord. I know. Will you trust me? I have these needs and these wants and these, these crazy things burn inside like a fire. And there are things I know you hate, God, but what am I supposed to do with them? And His word back to us, will you trust me? Will you stick with me? Will you stay? Or will you go? Will you run? That's why I tell the kids, run to Jesus, not run away. Don't run away. Run to Him. 
And so many of us, when we get in trouble, we try to fix it and make things right, and, and we're wasting time. Run to Jesus. Run, 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 fast as you can. God's grace led the Egyptians, his enemies, t- to submission. Look at the third one here. This is uh, verse 19 and 20. This is the third. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord. Listen, in the heart of Egypt, there will be an altar, a monument on the border to the Lord on the border of Egypt as you go in. What these are, the altar represented represents worship, and the monument represents identification. You know, when you take off here and you drive up to Las Cruces, uh, which many of you do regularly, you know, you get to a place where it says, you've now entered New Mexico. Well, you, you know, and they have their sign up there, and that's good. And when you come back this way, you see the Texas sign, and that's good and all that. But th- there's an identification with where you are, and the monument with God's name on it, is at their borders. In other words, all of us here, who used to be the enemies of God, who suffered under the ten plagues of Moses, whose land has been destroyed and ravaged by judgment, we've turned and we now identify ourselves with the Lord. It is access to worship and to a new identity. Think about that. You know, I think about Horatius Bonar. Horatius Bonar wrote this beautiful book called The Everlasting Righteousness. And if you haven't read it, I beg you to read it. It is one of the most fantastic books uh, in, in, the, in the corpus of Christian literature. And in that, in that book, he has a phrase, and, we, and I can't quote it exactly, but he said, when I look at my own name, which is so soiled and... And, and degraded and bad from all the things I've done, both in front of people and in secret in my heart. I know that I, my name is no good. I need another, but I need another person's name. I need another person's clothing because mine are so soiled, so covered and stained. How, how am I ever going to get them clean? There's not enough soap. In the world to clean these, what do I do? And then he points us to his Savior Jesus, whose name is good, whose clothes are pure. The the only stains on Jesus' clothes are our stains, not his. In that day there will be an altar. And look at verse 20, he says, he will send them a Savior. That's the word uh, Hamashiach. It's the word for Messiah. He will send them a Messiah, a Savior. And how does he do it? Look at verse 21 and 22. This is fantastic, folks. And I want to close, just bring us all to a close with this. How does God do that? He does it with what we call in theology. If you read some good theology books, uh, you read about the divine initiative. The divine initiative. This is what... It means. It means that God is the one who takes the first step towards humanity. 
You see, you don't read in your Bible, you don't see people out there in, the, in those stories in the Bible, everybody clamoring to find God, and God is hiding uh, like a capricious Greek God. He's hiding behind a tree, and he's peeking out at, at poor humanity who's looking for him, begging for him to come, and they're peeking out, and God is saying, catch me, catch me if you can, and then he hides, and you know, people are so, oh, we want God, we want God. No. You don't find that story anywhere in your Bible. What you find is God, people hiding from Him in bushes covered by fig leaves. (laughs) I mean, it's almost funny. I'm sure Moses was chuckling away. They probably thought he had too much to drink when they heard him riding it in his tent. You know, he's laughing. Fig leaves, yeah, right. You know. But that's what we do. God takes the divine initiative. And so in our theology, and I'm just talking about us crazy uh, Reformed people, we say that we say things like this. This is one of our sayings. And at the ordination, uh, if they had asked you this question, Dawson, and you answered it wrong, you know what would happen, right? This is one of the questions they ask in ordination where if you don't answer it right, they pull the trap door and you drop right out to the bottom. And the question is, what comes first? Faith or regeneration? What comes first? Faith or regeneration? And we're opposite from everybody else. We say regeneration comes faith because comes first because dead people can't believe. So God uses a divine initiative. He comes in, He puts the desires in our hearts, He frees us from the chains of bondage, so that we can believe. He doesn't believe for us. He just says, come to me, and he strips away the chains. And what will a free man do? A free man will follow the one who freed him. Wow, you freed me? I'm I'm with you. And that's what God does. He said, look, I will make myself, the Lord makes himself known. He takes the step towards us. He is the one who makes love. Not we, we, we're not the love makers. He makes love to his people. He stretches himself out completely. And this is what he does to his enemies. Look at the fourth one. In that day, Egypt and Assyria. Now he, what he does is he uses poetic device. It's just magnificent. We don't have time to talk about it. But he has, here's the enemy, Egypt. Then he reaches outside and he gets the other terrible, cruel enemy and he pulls this enemy. He says, not only Egypt, look, Assyria. In other words, he doubles everything that he has said about his grace and his love and his tenderness for his enemies. He says, it's not just Egypt. He reaches, he's got Egypt like this, and he gets Assyria, and he brings Assyria over, and he says, they will be one also. These historic enemies, Egypt and Assyria, will make peace. And then look at the fifth one. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria. And look how he talks about this uh, triumvirate of habitual historical enemies, how he talks about them. In that day, Israel will be a third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Those are the words he used for Abraham in Genesis 12. 
Blessed be Egypt, my people. Yeah. Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, the land that I have made. Blessed be Israel, my special possession. He puts them together. He reunifies them. And folks, if there's nothing else that Christ the King should exist for, it should be because we're trying to unify the world around us. Bring peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And make sure that our voice does not join the cacophony of hatred and venom that we see around for whatever reason. And we become peacemakers. Listen to this final quote by, Kid, by Kidner. In reaching out with the other hand to embrace Assyria, so often, so often coupled with Egypt in the worst of contexts, gives an unsurpassed vision of the Gentiles being fully included in the kingdom of God. Israel will have an equal part, a third, not third place. And her distinctive titles will be shared. Listen, her distinctive titles will be shared with her cruelest of enemies. Now this is a grand, glorious vision. Is it easy to do? No. The Apostle Paul fought it tooth and nail. And so let me finish with this. Just listen to how the Apostle Paul addressed the difficulty of really making peace with our enemies or with people unlike us. Listen. Please listen. You are all, he's talking to Gentiles and Jews at Galatia, the church in Galatia. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, united with Christ in baptism. What we just did right there, we united these children to Christ in baptism. United with Christ in baptism, you've put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew, no longer Gentile. No slave, no free, no male, no female. You are all one in Christ. And now that you belong to Him, you are the true children of Abraham, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And all of God's promises to Abraham belong to you. Christ Himself, listen, Christ Himself brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When? Here's how He did it. In His own body on the cross. He got torn apart shredded, dead, tortured, death, nails, thorns, the whole picture, folks. He got torn apart so that the worst of enemies could be united. 
He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Us, the people of God, with our neighbors who don't know God. He broke down that wall. He did this by ending the system of law and commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself one new humanity. A new humanity. No more. No more black, white, yellow, green, whatever. No, one. One humanity. Together, as one holy, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means. How did he do it? By means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him. You Egyptians, you Assyrians, you were far away from him. But he brought you through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Folks, this is what it means to be a Christian. That every wall, every impediment to us reaching out into the world, especially with people we don't like and who are not like us, reaching out and bringing them to our Savior and in Him finding our new identity, new humanity, Will you trust him with that? Will you? I hope so. Father, um, thanks. Thanks for bringing us who were so far off, bringing us near, for cleansing us from all uncleanness and for doing it with the blood of your son, Jesus. Help us, save us, And have mercy on us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.